Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you guys this morning. It's good to uh, get to consider God's Word together um, as I'm kind of getting set up. And before we get started, uh, I'll tell you a little story about what happened to me this morning, uh, even though it doesn't relate necessarily to the sermon at all. Um, but it does relate to at least something that I, I tend to do up here that I have gotten questions about. Um, most every time when I get up here and uh, when I teach, I always have a actual physical copy um, of God's Word. Uh, one, it helps me remind myself to invite, if there's anybody who doesn't have a copy that they could call their own, you're welcome to take one of these out of the racks in front of you. Uh, we know you'll be blessed by your time in it. Um, but then I've also been asked, why then sometimes do I bring it up here and actually don't then read from it and then teach the entire thing from an iPad, uh, or why sometimes do I read from it and why don't I? And sometimes I like the physicalness of holding something, um, but in all reality, it's more practical than that. Um, I, I simply bring this up here because inside of it, I also have printed off uh, my notes just in case uh, technology goes squirrely and everything goes uh, to, to the fan when it goes with this, that then I can at least have something to continue to talk about by going over to the physical copy. Um, but I say all that uh, because this morning at about uh, a little after 3 a.m., uh, something really weird happened to me. Um, one, I woke up from a dream. That normally doesn't happen to me. Uh, and then two, even probably more rare, I remembered that dream. Um, I'm sure like everybody I dream, I'm just not one of those who ever remembers what I dream about. Um, and so I, I did both. I was woken by a dream and I remembered that dream. Uh, and this is what I dreamed. I dreamt that I was up here this morning uh, giving uh, this sermon and in the middle, my iPad just stopped working. Um, and I went over to grab my trusty backup copy, and I didn't print it off this morning. And so I sat here just panicking, and it felt like an eternity as I'm just trying to reset my iPad and just kind of do everything in silence. And then all of a sudden, one of y'all just started going, boo, <laughs> boo. And then all of y'all joined in, and everybody was going, boo. And then it got really weird, because then y'all turned into like more of an animal sounds, and it was like, Aah! And I woke up, and in that moment of waking up, one of my neighbors put their dog out in the middle of the night, and it was going, <laughs> and it cried out for the next 30 minutes as I was trying to fall back asleep. So anyways, all that, again, has nothing to do with the sermon, but I guess if, my, if the iPad goes off, you're welcome to boo me. All right, we, uh, we're going to be in John chapter 12. If you uh, do have a copy of God's Word, you can open it up and navigate over there. We're going to be reading out of the ESV version um, we've been in John 12 now for several weeks leading up to this point, and we've co covered some big uh, moments. Uh, we, in the very beginning, we started with Mary anointing Jesus. This was entirely to communicate an opportunity of worship of Messiah by a few people. That was a very few crowd there with the disciples and with that special time um, with Mary and Martha. Then, if you remember a couple weeks back, Jill, uh, Chris just finished teaching uh, about the triumphant entry, entry the triumphant entry. And uh, there, we saw an opportunity to worship the Messiah by some Jews. So with Mary anointing Jesus, it was opportunity to worship the Messiah with a few. Now we see opportunity to worship with the triumphant entry with the Jews. And today's text, we're going to see the opportunity uh, to worship the Messiah by the Greeks with the arrival of some Greeks. We're going to be in verse 20 to 36. It's a large amount that we're going to try to uh, tackle this morning. But we get this, at first, what seems like this random introduction to these Greeks thrown into the beginning of this, because they really just kind of pop in here in 20, and then by 21, they're just kind of like off the scene, um, or seemingly so. 
It seems rather insignificant, but Jesus makes it abundantly clear that this is very significant. The arrival of these Greeks marks something that is very significant. Namely, it's going to be the timing of his hour that's finally come. John actually highlights this, strategically placing the Greeks here. He's the only one who records this little conversation with the Greeks uh, in all of the Gospels. And he records it here specifically because, if again, if you think back to when Chris taught about the triumphant entry, it started uh, in verse 13 of our chapter, chapter where they take palm branches and they go out to meet him and they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So the triumphant entry starts with the proclamation of Jesus as the king of Israel. And we know how the story went. He rode on in on the colt and all these people, these crowds amassed to him because they had heard about Lazarus. And upon the crowds coming to him, the Pharisees look up and say in verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So essentially what John's doing is he's setting up and the beginning of the triumphant entry with the proclamation of Jesus as king in verse 12. Uh, but, and of course the Jews should rightly be coming to him as king of Israel. But then by 19, he says the Pharisees are proclaiming that he is the king of the world. The Greeks are coming to him. And so that's exactly the story that John interjects as he now tells us about when the Greeks actually came to Jesus. So let's do this. Let's read uh, just in style all the text all together, and then we'll break it up verse by verse kind of as we finish our time out together. Uh, I will invite you just because I like it. Um, I'll invite you to stand in reverency of God's word, uh, hopefully as a reminder to write our, in physical action what our hearts should be doing desperate for God to do internally in spiritual action. It starts again in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who is from Bethsaida, Bethsaida, I did this in Israel too. It's hard to have a ministry, Bethesda, and then read Bethsaida. All right, let me start again. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever lo loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servants be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, is my soul troubled? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Before this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came down from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Appropriate for this morning. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus answers, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answers him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is the son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light 
that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Amen. These are the very words of God. You may be seated. We have a lot of ground that we're going to try to cover this morning. If you're a fan of tidy note sectioning, uh, note recording, this, these notes are going to be for you. We're going to have uh, three lists, each having four points. And so it'll be very tidy and we'll follow through it. Um, I wasn't planning on having that many lists, but you'll see as we get on. That's the, the, why we uh, end up doing it. But before we jump into our list, it's important to get the setting that we're introduced to uh, here from John, specifically this group of these characters. In verse 20, again, it says, now among those who went up to worship at the feasts were some Greeks. So as any good uh, readers of our scripture, we should be asking ourselves important questions at this point. We should start here by questioning, well, who are these Greeks? This isn't necessarily that they are men from Greece. Um, rather, this, this uh, term here um, referred to them as the Greeks, these Hellenes, these, these Greeks are more just a general title to talk about that they're non-Jews. They're Gentiles. Uh, this is just the same way of saying Greeks and Gentiles. They're just Gentiles. They're non-Jewish men. And we know, and John makes it clear, that they're coming here to worship at the temple. Now, that might seem foreign to us. How are non-Jews coming to a Jewish temple to worship? Um, but this is actually normal, even all the way back to the establishment of some of, those, of the temple processes. Um, back in 1 Kings 8, we see a provision for the foreigner to worship at the temple. Um, so even all along the process, it was designed even for those non-Jewish could come and worship at the temple. They just had to do so very specifically. And so here we see some God-fearing Greeks, some Gentiles who at least feared God. They at least had been won over from this idea of notion of worshiping many gods in a polytheistic Greek way to now recognizing that they want to worship at least the one true God and they think that this is the God of Israel. So they've come to the temple during this feast to worship him. They're only allowed again into the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. Um, that's as far as they could go, but all the same, this is where they are, and in this place, they seek out, or coming to this place, they seek out Philip, and they have an amazing request. Verse 21, so these came to Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, it's likely they come to Philip, because practically, Philip has a Gentile name. It also may be that they come to Philip, because they recognize him from Bethsaida, which is a, a town in a location within a Gentile region around Galilee. But when they come to Philip, we notice Philip doesn't immediately take them to Jesus. He has some pause here. Verse 22, Philip went and told Andrew. And so Philip first, before going to Jesus, Philip goes and he talks to Andrew and he says, hey, Andrew, what are we going to do about these Greeks? Now, it may be, before we get too hard on Philip here and thinking he just missed an opportunity to step out and do the right thing, it may be that he's trying to remember Jesus's teachings. Now he remembers what we see recorded in Matthew 15 when Jesus said, he has come for the lost sheep, the house of Israel. Maybe he's remembering that teaching and so he's going to Andrew and saying, hey Andrew, should I bring the Greeks? Because Jesus said he's coming for the sheep of Israel, the house of Israel. And maybe Andrew reminds him of what also Jesus said. It's something we considered back when we were in chapter 10 when we were talking about the good shepherd when Jesus says that he has other sheep, not in this fold, that he will also call to him. Maybe at this point, Andrew's saying, well, Philip, maybe this is the other sheep. And either way, whatever it is, this is all supposition, but what they do is what all disciples should do. It's what we should do is that they bring people to Jesus. 
That's the role of a disciple. So that's, that's what they do, is they finally bring people and they tell Jesus. Philip and Andrew tell Jesus. And then in the beginning of 23, and Jesus answers them. There is some, as a side note, there's some debate about what is this them, who's the them that they're referring to, some commentals. Um, others say it's a little bit wider than that. It's the disciples plus also some Jewish crowds. Um, they cite, because later on in the passage, we see uh, the Jewish crowds asking, at least to the crowds, asking a very Jewish question. Um, or other commentaries say this is all of them. This is that uh, Jesus is talking to the disciples, he is talking to the Jewish crowd, and he's just talking to these new Greek or Gentile crowd that has come to him as well. We actually don't know. The text isn't specifically clear. It kind of does move off as if the Greeks aren't addressed and Jesus continues to address what it is, what the, whoever's in front of him. But I, I'm not really concerned with us not being able to nail that down because what is certainly true is that the message, the truth statement that Jesus says is for everybody. It is for the disciples, yes. It is also for the Jews and it is also for the Gentiles. The truth statement that Jesus is gonna make is for everybody and it is for us even today. Because what happens in verse 23 is Jesus reveals a truth explicitly about himself. And then he goes on in 24 and on and relates that truth as a statement, not just about him, but actually about anyone who wants to follow him. So he states a statement about himself that he says is also true for everybody, not just the disciples, not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles, but anyone who wants to follow him. So let's look down. What does he say in verse 23? And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is how important this is. This is how big the arrival of the Greeks is. As Jesus looks at the arrival of the Greeks here seeking him, and he says that this moment, now, with them coming, the hour has finally come, right? We've been working through John this whole time. We've been building up. We've seen him, the hour not being there, him delaying constantly because Jesus is marching himself to the cross. He's not being dragged there. He's said that the hour hasn't come and he's taken no action. And now he finally says this, this arrival of the Greeks, the hour has finally come. Essentially what he's saying is I'm about to be glorified. I'm on my way to glory. And man, let me tell you, this is gonna be a sight to see. I'm about to be the most glorified human on the, to behold on all of the universe. Yes, of course the Greeks are right in coming to see this. Yes, you as Jews should be right in coming to see this. My disciples, you will want to see this. This is going to be amazing. I'm about to get a new name from my father, one in which every knee shall bow. The Jews, the Greeks, the Gentiles, the barbarians, everyone's about to bow. I'm about to be glorified. Of course you should want to see that. Of course, we should want to see that as well. And perhaps now the disciples are getting all jazzed up about it. Maybe now in the conversation, they're like, yes, we want to see this rising up too, son of man. Come on. We know how we want a conquering king. Let's, let's do this. But Jesus doesn't even let them speak that out. Maybe he knows their inner thoughts and he wants to address it before they have a chance to ask the question because he knows that the way that you think I'm going to be raised up it's not the way that I'm going to be raised up. Let me tell you, I am going to be raised up, but it's after I'm put to death. And this is what they were not expecting. Verse 24, he says the, the catching statement, right? Guys, pay attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
We all know this, how this works, right? We all can think back to middle school biology class when we had the lima beans and the little styrofoam cups, right? Uh, we, all, we all know that uh, part of the germination process is for seeds to actually be in the earth and die before life comes back out of them. One of the commentaries I was reading was, again, how beautiful it is that Jesus, who created the whole universe, created seeds to work this way so that he could teach us this truth about himself, right? We all know this is how seeds work. More recently, I was reminded of it um, because uh, about a month ago, I spent uh, a, a morning in the office of uh, the Textot office da- downtown uh, with Gary Halbrooks, and um, uh, it was purely a waste of an entire morning. We weren't very productive. Um, it was good to hang out with Gary, but besides that, we were walking out not really having accomplished anything, uh, and so when I walked out, I noticed on the little windowsill there um, was little packets, you know, the, the little seeds to, to go and make your own wildflowers, you know, to plant your wildflowers. And so I was like, well, I'm going to get something out of this trip all the way down here. And so I just grabbed a handful of those wildflower seeds and I put them in my truck and, uh, and I thought I'd go home and, and get to do them with my girls and that'd be a fun thing that they would enjoy. Um, but I actually forgot about it and I left them in my truck for quite some time. I left them in my truck. Then I remembered them and I went back to my truck and what did I find? Well, I found that. I found the seeds still in a packet, right? The seeds didn't just burst out of there and start growing into wildflowers. Why? Well, because we know we haven't done what the seeds are meant to do. We haven't, I haven't put them in the ground so that they can die and so that life can come from them. This is the truth that we all know, and this is the truth that Jesus is saying about himself. He's saying that uh, my design, Jesus' design for salvation is death. This is Jesus' design. Jesus is designed for salvation to come from death. He says, I'm a grain who won't be alone. I want others to be able to come to me. And so because of that, I have come to bring you with me. But first, I must die. And when I die, you will be my fruit. This is Jesus' design for salvation. It's his death. But it's also not just a design for our salvation. It's also a design for our imitation. Meaning, that is a design that we are supposed to copy as well. This is a true statement about Jesus, but it is also a true statement that we are to participate in, in our own deaths. Look down, he expounds in 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Mixed in these couple of verses is some pretty significant things. On one hand, there's some pretty stuff, tough, tough statements that Jesus is making here. But coupled with every tough statement, we also see some very triumphant statements. These are our first two lists that I want to consider. The first ones I want to consider is what are the tough statements of Jesus here? Four simple points of the tough statements of Jesus. We, can't, we, we, we will have to consider them both. We can't miss it by just choosing one. If we just talk about the tough, then we're gonna miss the power of grace and of freedom by looking at the triumphant. If we look at just the triumphant, don't consider the tough, then we we lose the, the cost. We lose seeing the value, the cost that was paid for the call for us to come and follow him. So we gotta consider both, but first, we're gonna consider the tough. Wayne Grudem, he's a uh, um, systematic theologian. He made a comment about the American church um, of his fears. One of the fears that he has of the American church is that if the hard things aren't taught in the church, we won't become a holy people. 
So that's our task for us this morning, is to consider these hard things of Jesus. The first one happens in the very beginning of 24, when Jesus models for us dying. This is the first tough thing. Jesus models for us dying. It says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. So what is the path of salvation? Well, it's coming through death, through pain, through humiliation. This is tough. Verse 25, he throws in another tough statement. He also says, Jesus calls us to hate our lives. Wow, hate our lives. It says, whoever loves his life loses it. And, when it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. You must hate your life. This is a paradox, right? A paradoxical situation. This is counterintuitive. Well, if I love my life, I would want to keep it. Well, apparently if I want to keep it, I must not love it. I must hate it in this world. This is tough. Verse 26 also begins with another call. Jesus calls us to die with him. How do you get that from 26? Well, look at it. It says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Well, where is Jesus going? This entire conversation has been building up about him going to the cross, to Calvary. This is what we're going to see, a, a big shift in the ending of Jesus' public ministry in the book of John, moving to private ministry so that he can get to, obviously, then his fulfillment of ministry, which happens at his cross, the death and resurrection of Christ. This is why Bonhoeffer calls the, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, when a Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is tough. We must follow him to the cross, even to our own death. Verse 26 continues and has a second calling. It has Jesus calling us to be a servant. The text says, if anyone serves me. It's a verb form of the word servant. Meaning that we must do his bidding. No matter the demand, no matter how lowly the task, it isn't our will. No matter if we like it or want it, we are the servant. We do the master's bidding. This is tough. Especially in a culture here. It communicates power by your own freedoms and of saying, I'm giving up those because he is the master. I am the servant. This is tough. And so essentially, this is what Jesus says. Is he says, you want to know what it is to be a disciple? Well, it's going to be tough. It's no surprise. He said these words in Matthew 7, 14, the gate is narrow and the way is hard. It's tough. That leads to life and those who find it are few. So our first group of lists is it's tough to die. It's going to be tough to hate our life in this world. It's going to be tough to follow Jesus on the road to Calvary, to our death. It's going to be tough to take the role of a servant, especially in a world of power. But luckily, not only do we have that this, this way is tough, but we also have the way is triumphant. We see in all of these points and in all these verses, I just read the first half of it, which was the tough part, but every one of them is also coupled, linked directly with a triumphant, a glorious part at the end. So going back through the same verse iterations, verse 24, we see at the end of the first half, Jesus' death gives us salvation. Yes, the seed must die, but if it dies, it will bear much fruit. Death is not in vain. Death is victorious for Christ. Because it bears fruit. The death of Christ triumphantly secures our salvation. This is a great truth. Verse 25 also has a linked command. It's a, Jesus commands us to give life. 
Yes, if we love our life, we will lose it. Yes, if we are to properly hate our life in this world, what? What will happen? What's the outcome? And we will keep it for eternal life. He who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. In reading for this, I came across a comment from John Piper and his perspectives have been, was hugely helpful. I decided not to resummarize it, but to include it as a direct quote on the screens. It says, what we lay down for Christ, he will put in our hands again with glory. You cannot out-sacrifice his resurrection generosity. I probably did him not very good justice reading that. I'm sure there was a lot of hand-waving when Piper presented that originally. Also, verse 26 continues with our third point of triumph. Jesus calls us, to give, calls us and gives us glory. Yes, we must follow him to Calvary. But again, to what outcome? For following him, where are we going? If anyone serves me, he must follow me to my death at Calvary. And where I am, there will my servant be also. There will my servant be also. We haven't come across this yet in the book of John, but we will. There's one other time John or Jesus specifically uses these words, and it happens in 14. We'll get there, and it's when he's talking about heaven. It says this in verse 3 of chapter 14, I go and prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. If we follow him to Calvary, we will get to follow him to glory. He is preparing a place for us. And then lastly, our fourth point, fourth point of triumph is in the end of verse 26, Jesus' design, design gives us honor. Yes, we must become his servants, but what's the result of becoming his servant? The Father will honor him. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is what C.S. Lewis writes about when he writes the book, The Weight of Glory. The Father will honor his servant. So yes, this is the very tough but triumphant call of Christ. I don't want you to miss this. Because tough things doesn't mean a joyless life. Tough news doesn't mean bad news. The triumph far supersedes the, tr the tough here. Putting all those couplets together, we read it like this. When, yes, we'll die, but we'll bear much fruit. Yeah, we're to hate our lives in this world, but we'll keep our lives for eternity. We will follow Jesus onto Calvary, but we will join him again in glory yeah, we'll become servants, but servants who are honored by the Father. Essentially, the whole point of what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, this is the price I will pay for your salvation, and you're to imitate it. But don't worry, I will also not only pay the price of your salvation, but I will be the strength of your imitation. This is originally where I was gonna end it, um, in the sermon, this was originally what I was asked to cover. And so I started writing out, even at this point, you know, a bunch of application points. Um, but then this week, Chris asked me if I could go all the way through 36, and he's my boss. So I say, yeah. But it's, it seems, it's, I, don't, I didn't want to go on, because it seemed like there was enough here. I was already grieved pretty hard preparing this stuff. This was hard for me to consider. I started jotting application stuff down. Where am I trading in the life of triumphant life because I believe the lies of an easy life, right? Luke 9, 23, if anyone wants to follow after me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. Am I daily sacrificing to this? Am I striving to keep something alive against my nature as a Christian that I'm called to put to death? 
Are there things that are weakening me in my roles as a husband, as a father, as a witness? Because I've nurtured some old habit, some secret sin, some root of pride, some fear of looking silly, some desperate need for approval, some desire for wealth. What is it? I confess that in this week I was greatly troubled in the preparation for this message, considering these things. And so I just wanted to stop here because I felt like that was enough to weigh on us. But I'm glad Chris asked me actually to continue. Because what happens in this passage, here in this moment where I am troubled by the tough, triumphant life that I am called to, we run into Jesus. So relatable as our Redeemer. Yet again, he too is troubled by this tough, triumphant life. So let's keep going in 27. And we'll fly through this last, last little pa- section of the passage to uh, end our time with one last list. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Jesus is troubled. This Greek word, terasso, was actually one um, that l- literally meant just to stir up. Physically, or, or figuratively, it was meant um, to, to add agitation to something that should be still. So this isn't actually the first time we've come across this list, this word. Um, we ran into it actually with Jesus outside of uh, Lazarus' tomb when he said his spirit was greatly troubled. We talked about that then, right? Essentially, it describes an inner perplexity of an emotional agitation. Jesus is troubled by the same things we are considering this morning. Will I choose my way Or will I choose the Father's? So what does Jesus do with the truth? He turns and runs to it. When he is troubled by this tough, triumphant life he's going to prepare, he turns and proclaims a truth about God. Jesus chooses God's glory. And this is the same thing for us. That we should follow in his model yet again. When we are troubled With the tough, triumphant call, we should turn and reflect on God's glory. Look how he does this. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus prays to God to glorify himself in his trouble. And then how does God answer? A voice came down in heaven in verse 28. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. This is a fascinating, mind-blowing verse, so small. And yet here, essentially, we know Jesus is God, so God is praying that God will glorify his name. God is saying, I've already glorified my name, and God is saying that I will again glorify my name, all in this one little tiny verse. It's amazing. And we've seen it. We've seen especially the already glorification, already in the book of John, right? We've seen the incarnation presented that way in the very first chapter, Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've seen it time and time again throughout the miracles of Jesus, the first one being the, at the wedding in Cana, chapter 2, verse 11, this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. And now we're about to see it in the rest of John, his glorification that is going about to come again, namely this time at the cross. Now, not everybody in the crowd gets this. We can relate to the crowd again. Verse 29, the crowd 
that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. They're trying to find other explanations of this except for giving it to God the Father's own proclamation of Jesus, his son. But Jesus makes it abundantly clear here that this proclamation actually wasn't for him. It's not for the Father. That's why he's saying this. It's not for the Holy Spirit. It's not for Jesus here. He's saying this is this proclamation is for you, for the crowds, for us, the readers. It says in verse 30, Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. And then what Jesus does through the remaining time is our remaining list. So Jesus shares the way that God glorifies himself. So if this is proclamation is for us, his glory is for us to reflect upon, to be assured for the tough, triumphant life he's called us to, how does he glorify himself? Verse 31, first point, God glorifies himself by judging the world. The text says, now is the judgment of this world. So when does this happen in the text? Now. Now this happens. I mean, yes, we know that there is a second ultimate judgment that will come at the end of time. But what Jesus is addressing here is he's talking about the entirety of this passage is him moving towards the cross. And he is saying, now my hour has come. Now at the cross, judgment will happen. There's a sense that this judgment has come and yet will come again. But it's important that at the decisive moment, what the cross does is it puts a pivotal dividing line of if you can choose him and avoid that second judgment. We ran into it again already in John, John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is past tense. He's already passed. At the cross, our belief passes us from death into life to not face second judgment. Again, I'll read it because it's uh, so good. John Piper says it this way on the screen. The death of Jesus becomes the decisive dividing line between the condemned and the vindicated. If you trust Jesus, you are united to him and his death is your death. His condemnation is your condemnation. God, now at the cross, provides judgment so for his own glory. The 31 continues And also in God's glorification, God will glorify himself by casting out Satan. Text says, again, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. We're in the same quandary here. We know Revelation 20 will end with the ultimate casting out of the Satan. But Jesus is also saying, even here now, there's again a now and a then aspect to this happening. Now at the cross, Satan will be defeated. He will be cast out. The cross defeats Satan. I think it defeats Satan because in in essence, it takes away the only weapon he has in our judgment. In the great courthouse scene of standing before God in judgment, as we would stand there before God, the only weapon Satan would have is to say, see, Paul, he's got sin in his life. He's not yours. You can't be with him. He's one of mine. But at the cross, When I put my faith in the cross, Jesus pays the price for the sin. He takes away Satan's only weapon against me so that I don't face that judgment. And instead, I face eternal life. God glorifies himself by casting out Satan. Then our third point, God glorifies himself in verse 32 by drawing all to himself. It says, and I, when I'm lifted up from this earth, will draw all people to myself. 
This isn't universalism. This isn't, we've read, even in the scripture we've already read this morning, we've seen that there is a judgment. Some will face judgment. What the all that he's actually replying to here um, is the valid, like, is validifying, validification, that's not a word, (laughs) validifying, he is validifying the means in which people can come to him. Again, the cross. This is what he's doing. A man much smarter than myself, Leon Morris, in his commentary on this book says uh, this. He says, Jesus is not affirming that the whole world will be saved. He's affirming that all who are saved are saved in this way with him at the cross. He's speaking of a universal rather than narrowly nationalistic religion. This isn't just for the Jews. This is also for the Greeks. This religion, this following after Christ, this is for everybody. And it's the cross in which he will draw his sheep, both Jews, both Gentiles. This is the answer to Andrew and Philip. In our last point of glorification in verse 35, God glorifies himself in you as you are the light of the world. The crowds again show up and they get a little bit distracted here. In 33, he said, to, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowds answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must lift it up? Who is this son of man? The people are doing the classic thing that the crowd's doing. Unfortunately, this is the last time in the book of John we'll hear the crowd's voice. And it's kind of because they're just doing the same thing. They're asking a theological question not a personal question. They're asking Jesus to give them some knowledge and Jesus is still sitting there trying to say, no, I want to give you myself. Essentially, he's saying, stop with your theological questioning. Believe now, it's really urgent. Listen to his words. So Jesus says to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. So walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness, does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. I think this is our final application for us. As we consider all the ways that the call to follow after Christ is one that is tough, but it's also one that is triumphant. And in our perplexity, in our troubling about how to daily live a life that chooses a tough but triumphant life rather than an easy and dead one. We have God's glory to reflect on, to provide us the strength to make the right choice. And so this is our final question. Will you be one who walks in darkness? Or will you be one walking in the light that Jesus gives? So I'm gonna ask John to come back up as a point of invitation. And this is our time to respond to this text. Perhaps maybe if you've never said, if you have never taken the opportunity that Jesus is giving you to remove Satan's weapon against you, to give you eternal life because you haven't confessed your sins to him, then do it. Ask him. This morning he wants to take him away. Or maybe you have done that and you're like myself, continue to be troubled by the way that even though I have done that, why am I still not living a life that reflects that? Maybe our prayer then is, Holy Spirit, continue to delve out in me and Spirit, thank you for being the one to provide in me a successful participation in my salvation.
Or maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, I don't want to do this alone. I really need a church like this, a body of people to come alongside of me. You've already had, uh, already had conversations with Lance or our Welcome Home team, and you want to come make that known, you can come and make that known. But whatever it is, however you need to re- reply, I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to invite you to come forward, to pray, to kneel, to do whatever, whatever posture you need to take. Take and respond to Scripture as God has presented it this morning.